Welcome to the Real Immunity Podcast, where we'll dig deeper into the concepts from the Real Immunity film series. Learn more at realimmunity.org. I want to welcome Dr. Deborah Gambrell to today's podcast. And Deborah and I go back a little ways. I had her. She was in the film, she was in the Real Immunity series, and everyone loved her there. And she also presented at a conference that I did in St. Petersburg, Florida, I think it was 2016. And um, she spoke about the immune system, about her work. She's a pediatric anesthesiologist. And um, I found her fascinating when I listened to her on another podcast. So I reached out. And she graciously accepted my invitation to be in the film and to come speak at the conference. So I want to welcome Deborah. And uh, if you want to tell us anything about your background or any short bio, please feel free to do that. But let's just dive in. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Silla. It's so nice reconnecting. That's great. That's great. So, um, I want to touch on something that you said in the Real Immunity series, because I've had so many people contact me with questions about it. You talked about um, kind of an anthroposophical theory or approach to development and how the childhood diseases that mother nature has provided us, such as measles, mumps, chicken pox, how they're precursors to developmental leaps in a child's life. And people have expressed great interest in that. So can you help us understand a little bit more about that, Deborah? Sure. So anthroposophic medicine is based on kind of this triad of the human being. You know, we have this center balance place, and then we have these two extremes where one can be seen as kind of a uh, inflammatory process, uh, and the other is seen as a sclerosing process. And normally, you know, if you look at the developing human being, children are more inflammatory. They just are. That kind of fire that gets going within them helps them to grow and develop and differentiate, you know, everything that you can imagine inflammation does, right? Inflammation makes things kind of bigger, um, warmer. Um, it makes things more fluid, um, uh, it can even bring, bring fluid to the picture, if you can imagine an inflammatory lesion. Um, so these children here are um, supposed to be in this inflammatory developmental stage. Um, in contrast, if you look at older adults, you see that they're more sclerosing. They're kind of um, um, a little drier. They have a little bit more contraction. Um, diseases um, become more chronic typically in an adult. It's easier to become chronic historically in an adult because things are kind of consolidating, condensing. Um, and that kind of goes for the whole human being. That goes for our thoughts, for our body movement, for our feelings. You know, everything that comprises the soul of the human being kind of goes from this inflammatory to this sclerosing. And like I said, we have this kind of teeter-totter balancing act throughout our entire life that teeters uh, along the fulcrum of, um, you know, the balance, the center point. Um, and children, if you look at them grow and develop, 
even just simply, just using simple pediatric metrics, you'll see a child, uh, a baby, that will initially start to get a little bit wider as they're feeding more. You know, they're a little bit, they become a little bit more slow. They kind of just get this widening effect. Right before something happens, maybe a fever, maybe a, a, a small illness, maybe even just, you know, a bump on the head or something. And then they start to elongate. So you'll see this repeating pattern of widening, slowing down, and then kind of speeding up and a growth spurt, getting taller and, you know, filling out. Interesting. Um, yeah. And you'll, you'll see this pattern all throughout growth and development. This pattern is more pronounced um, when there is a fever in a child and fevers are part of the growth process. Without fevers, we don't, differentiate as much as we should. Um, an example of this would be somebody who has, you know, maybe chronic fatigue syndrome. They've looked at their T cell variation and they're very narrow. They never really differentiated. They're very narrow bands of T cells um, where, you know, you should have diverse, you know, di di diversity. Um, the, um, the fever in the child might come along if there's stagnation in this growth and development. Um, it might come along when the immune system says, hey, I haven't seen this thing before and I need to differentiate. It might come along when a child has emotional stuckness, especially these you know, kind of 10, 11, 12 year olds, they, they might get emotional fevers. They're working through some kind of new stuck feelingness that needs to flow. Um, and in many of those cases, when you have a good fever, you know, 102 that's concentrated in the belly, not in the head, not, you know, in the extremities, not in one of the organs, but when it's in the gut where it should be, you know, we see a gut reset. We see kind of a turnover of the biome into something more functional. We see um, new neural pathways either being developed or being pruned, right? Because when we're growing, the point of a child's neurologic development is pruning, right? Autism is the lack of pruning. There's too much neural circuitry happening. So, you know, I labeled it a gut reset fever where you have this really good intense hot fever in the gut that kind of resets the neural pathway. And now maybe this child can ride that bike. They can read that book. They can do that skill that they have been trying to master before they got sick. And school teachers historically have, have commented on, um, on this, you know, when we used to have childhood illnesses, measles and chicken pox, they would comment on, you know, Susie would uh, go home, uh, you know, with measles and come back and wow, she could read. Did she just spend all that time in bed reading? Well, no, likely she spent that time in bed resting. Yeah. Um, but had the fever. Yeah. But That's so interesting because, you know, so many parents of autistic kids talk about how when their child has a fever, that some of their autistic behaviors are reduced. Yep, I've seen that in my children. My oldest, who was, um, I'd say, moderately autistic, you know, he had nonverbal till five hand screech or hand flapping and screeching, you know, that kind of uh, picture. Um, mm -hmm. When he would get a fever, he would finally look like he was calm and at peace. You know, he could speak. He could form thoughts and sentences and he could concentrate on something for more than 10 seconds. You know, right. when the fever went away, you know, some of those things creeped, 
you know, crept back in, but, um, right. You know, they do talk about with chicken pox, there's a study with chicken pox that children that have had the actual disease of chicken pox have less chance of developing a certain type of brain cancer. And I think it's something like 21% reduced. Um, we right. don't study those anymore because we don't have the live disease to study. Right, right. And uh, yeah, so we need to support those fevers. We need to support them and respect them. And can you share ways in which we can support them the best? Sure. So a fever is scary for any parent, any mother, any father. It's a scary thing when the child gets a fever, especially when they're cooking, when they're really starting to get warm. The important thing about managing a fever is not that uh, you're looking at the number. Um, some of the things to, that are concerning are what the child looks like. Are they lethargic, meaning they don't have energy? You know, sick children should be crabby. They should be whiny. They should be clingy. They should be you should hear them, you know? If a sick child is easy to take care of, uh, that's a concern. You know, if they're so sedated that all they wanna do is sleep and they're not really interacting, that's concerning. Um, and another right. thing that's- What I usually tell parents is vitality. That in homeopathic speak, it's look at their vitality. Don't look at the number, just no. are they vital? Are they interacting with you? Exactly, exactly. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And then also um, a couple of the other things are the rate of rise of the fever. You know, if you have a child that just, you know, a typical fevering episode, if you don't suppress it, lasts three to five days. The fever typically shows up in the evening of day one, you know, five o'clock at night, uh, I don't feel so good. Um, by about 11 o'clock that night, they're really fevering pretty well. Overnight, they can have some discomfort, some sweating, some, um, some children hallucinate, um, and we can talk about that. Uh, and then the next morning they wake up and they feel better, not well, but they feel better than the day before. And then they might at that time choose to have some broth or something very light in their belly. But come five o'clock again that day, three or five o'clock, they'll fever again. And you'll go through a similar process for three to five days. And what the parent wants to look for is that this is changing. The quality of the fever change changes. The discomfort changes. You wanna see movement throughout this whole process. Right. If you have the same fever, same symptoms that has not, have not changed at all in three days, that's concerning. Right, right, they're stuck. And they're stuck. can this be associated with say teething and not a viral? Infection. For sure. So any kind of fever that's caused by anything can yes. have a similar effect. Yes. Yeah. And when kids are teething, you know, just as an aside, when children are teething and there's a gap in their mouth, that's considered an open gut, just like it is when the child's, you know, less than six months old, you wouldn't think of feeding them any food or introducing, you know, anything really unusual into the breast milk. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with when children are teething, it's an open gut type situation. You don't wanna try some new soup that has some new things in it the child's never had because those antigens from those proteins are gonna go right in through where the teeth opening is before it's processed and known by the gut. And that's one way of developing food allergy. So keep it simple when the kids are sick. Something, things are already processed before. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Because we're seeing so many food allergies, even in kids who are unvaccinated, where their immune systems haven't been skewed towards the inflammatory stage. Yeah, why don't you go that? Well, first, I want to ask you about the hallucinations, because my own kids with 105 fevers would have hallucinations. You were going to say something about that? Yes. So when we have a fever, anthroposophically speaking, you know, we kind of get out of ourselves a little bit. And the analogy that I'd like to bring with that is a severe analogy would be a concussion, right? If you hit your head, all of a sudden, maybe you don't know who you are, where you are, you know, things like that. You're really out of your body. A fever is kind of just a minimal, just lifting out of the body where, you know, it kind of allows a reorganization of all the lower members of the body, you know, the physical part of the body for sure, you know, the energy level of the body, which we call the etheric body, the thing that gives us um, uh, life, right? The astral part of the body, which is kind of our feeling soul level of our body. Those three pieces need to interweave in a certain way and if for whatever reason the body feels, and it, it, especially in a child, the, you know, it's felt that the body is not integrated well enough, that alone can induce a fever. The immune system might look for something as a trigger, um, maybe an antigen in the air or an antigen in the food or a feeling, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds can get fevers from, from their feeling space. Um, the, the higher self, the ego will look for something to cause an immune reaction to, to develop a fever so that the ego can lift slightly out of the body, which is where we feel disoriented and maybe lightheaded or hallucinate, you know, these things that are not quite um, in our normal daily perception. Um, And when you're lifted out just a little bit, you can then, you know, your body is very intelligent and will reorganize in a way that's more functional for the body. And then when the ego comes back in, as the fever is resolving, and there's things you can do to support this, some body care that you can do, um, the child looks more grown up. Right, right. So this is so fascinating because it really uh, illustrates how interactive we are with our environment. It's not about sitting around waiting for a germ to attack us. It's about us going out into the environment and utilizing what we need for our evolution and development. 100%. And if you talk to any fancy, super smart scientist that deals with this, they'll tell you that, you know, the biggest transfer of information is through illnesses, right. you know, through, through viral um, uh, illnesses. That's you know, more than any supercomputer that we have. That's how we transfer, you know, the greatest amount of information. So amazing. And, you know, what have we done as a society in trying to eliminate disease? What has that caused? It's like, it's like eliminating. There's, there's so much to that question. There's so much to the question because through disease, we, we realize our humanity, right? When we get sick, we develop compassion for others that get sick. When we get well, we figure out, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you do it to get well. This is what you do, even if it's not conscious. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of these autistic kids that have recovered have within them the sick and the healing, and more importantly, the path. 
from the sick to the healing. They embody that no matter what they do in their life, they have that. Um, so when we alter our relationship with nature, just like when we take in, when we consume artificial light and artificial food and whatever it is, it just changes our relationship um, with nature. Um, when we remove those things that are supposed to historically educate our immune system, we have to educate ourselves in a different way. So we become less beings of nature and more beings of technology mm -hmm. um, for better or for worse, right? Because there are some amazing things coming forth in medicine that have to do with technology for sure. Um, but that's just kind of what it is. You know, we're starting to resonate with those things that are um, synthetic. Right, right. So along that topic, what do you see in terms of where medicine is going? I mean, I, there's, it's broken. The system is broken. We know that. Where are we going? What, what do you foresee? So that just gives me the chills to think about because there is, there's so much opportunity. Um, the system is broken, it's breaking down. Um, and I think that's a good thing. You know, it needs to break um, because only from chaos can we create something truly new. Um, we've tried redesigning our health system every decade and it's only gotten worse with every redesign. You know, it, it really kind of needs to fail to be rebuilt. Um, there are groups that are getting together uh, internationally, working with the WHO. You know, they're coming up with their new guidelines for integrative medicine. Uh, uh, they had a 10-year guideline from 2013 to 2023, and it's expected that they're going to have another 10-year um, guideline issued. And so there are international groups coming together and saying, well, we'd like to be heard at this table. Um, and the WHO seems to be responsive and wanting to kind of hear uh, what these groups have to say. So that's really positive. Um, we didn't have that 10 years ago. We didn't know that that was happening, uh, but now we do. Um, there are huge advancements in, in frequency medicine. So light color sound. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working with uh, the hospital that I work at and trying to get red lights in their recovery room after surgery, uh, red lights known to decrease nausea and inflammation and pain and recovery, it helps recovery from anesthesia. It helps kids come more fully back into their body. Um, very, very inexpensive. It's a, it's a one-time purchase, you know, for that hospital. And there's uh, you know, limited to no side effects. Uh, there's no cost. Um, uh, color therapy uh, is being widely used in Europe for depression and PTSD and even cancers and, and other types of uh, illnesses. Um, uh, right. Sound therapy, of course, you know, we use, you know, lithotripsy as sound therapy to break up the kidney stones, you know, right. in yeah. the room and that's sound. Um, I think there's so many, um, so many things coming out that we are just almost able to grasp and um, I imagine in 20 years, we'll be able to do anesthesia. Uh, in my mind, I call it light augmented anesthesia. 
where maybe we use half the dose of the drugs and the other half is, is given by light, you know, causing unconsciousness using different light frequencies aimed at different parts of the brain. Wow. Um, that yeah. would be amazing. Yep. That's yeah. What role do you think homeopathy plays in future medicine? Yeah. So that that's, um, you know, one of the things being brought to the table here uh, to the WHO um, in the next six months, for sure, because we, you know, value um, even people that don't practice homeopathy, um, you know, can, can appreciate the energetic nature of homeopathy. Um, you know, anesthesiologists will tell you that you can give the same drug to the same person with the same procedure, with the same surgeon and the same nurses and have a different outcome based on the energy of the room. Um, you know, if someone's having a bad day or, wow. um, you know, just any of that. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, homeopathy first and foremost is, is, works with the body. It's not going to ask the body to do more than it can do already. Um, it's not going to generally, you know, I'm not, I'm not a homeopath. This, this is just me speaking from just observation mostly, but you know, it's not going to, um, it'll either help or it won't generally hurt. Right. You either, right. either help or it won't work generally. Um, you know, there's more specifics in that, you know, in terms of a healing crisis and this, that, the other, but, um, it supports the vital force where it wants to go because yeah. I I've had cases with um, someone near death and the family comes to me to treat. And I always inform the family that individual's vital force will decide if it wants to pass or if it wants to rally. And if we don't have any control over that, giving the remedy isn't doing it, giving the remedy is supporting the vital force to go in the direction that it needs to go, wants to go. Sure, 100%. We see yeah. that with fevers too, how we set the child up when they're having a fever. You know, having the window open for a little bit of breeze coming through, maybe having a candle in the room if the mom is able to be close, feeding very simple foods and, you know, natural light and all of those things. It's, you know, there's some physicality to it, but, you know, it's also energetic. It's right. also giving the body the environment to heal. Right, right. So here, here's my next question. You know, you as an anesthesiologist are open to all of this. This has been an interest for you. You're, you're trying to move some of these practices into the allopathic world at the hospital where you work. You have a foot in, in both worlds and you're comfortable there. And I find ER docs are the other specialty who are similarly as open to homeopathy and energy medicine. So those two specialties, I, I have people in my practice who've come to me, anesthesiologists and ER docs, those are the two. And I have my own opinion about why, why those two specialists are open to it. And I wonder if you have any thought about that, Deborah. Well, the one thing, the one thing that I've, I've told people over the years is that, um, you know, all anesthesiologists believe in God at some point, you know, even if you're the most devout atheist, right? Because when your patient's on the table and they're not doing well, they're coding or whatever, you're fighting for their life, you know, at some point you, 
reach out to some higher power, whether you believe in it or not. Um, it's just kind of where human nature goes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, please, someone help me, you yeah. know, kind of this, this state. And, um, you know, the combination of that and, you know, what really could only be what in my mind looks like miracles happen, things that should not have happened, but yet they do, you know, um, you know, uh, I've done tens of thousands of cases over my career and, and in only one of those cases, did I put out a drug on the cart that I never use and yet had to use it for that case. No indication that I would need that. There wasn't anything in the child's history that it would be needed or anything, but why, why, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, um, and things like that happen quite frequently if you're, you know, paying attention and, and, um, to everyone in the room, you know, the nurse says, wow, I, you know, I did that and just happened to have that ready and wow, we needed it, you know, and the surgeon, you know, oh, we didn't have that equipment, but we had this one and thank goodness, because this is the one we actually needed. You know, this happens so much that um, it just, to me, it's, it's bigger than chance. Right. You know, right. Um, and plus your awareness of consciousness. I mean, yeah. consciousness is a mystery and you're faced with it every day. Yeah. It's what you deal with. Where do we go? What, what happens under anesthesia? You know, what, what happens when you die? What happens when you're born? What, what happens when you sleep? You know, all those things, what happens when you grow and develop? That's also um, unfolding consciousness, right? When these kids kind of get a new skill, that's consciousness unfolded. Right, Uh, right, right. Broadening, opening, evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Because think about the consciousness of a of a toddler who sees what's in front of them and reaches for it, but they don't have any awareness of what's surrounding that. And as our consciousness grows, we become more and more aware of things outside of ourself that are influencing everything. And the patient experience, right? Like if you take the time to talk to patients after their anesthetic, it's humbling you know, the experiences that they have. Um, while they're under? While they're under, while they're coming to, while they're coming back into their body. Um, it's, it's sacred work for sure. Um, and you see some people, especially kids, if you do an anesthetic in a really good way, you're really present and you keep them warm and you keep mama close and you, you're kind and warm and soft and safe and you do all those things. And, and some of these kids will come, come into their body in a more integrated way after the anesthetic than they were before. And parents have noticed and commented like, wow, he's looking at me. He's never looked at me before. He sees wow. me, you know, it's, it's, um, it's humbling. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so amazing. And I think for ER docs, they have the recognition that emergency medicine is applicable. That that works. Treating chronic disease doesn't happen within our system. We just suppress symptoms. We make it more chronic. Right, right. But the ER docs, they see it. And they're also faced with life and death as you are, that line. 
Yep. That can go so quickly for those guys. Right. So talking to you and 10 minutes later, you're pushing on their chest, you know, trying right. to get them to circulate. I want you to repeat a comment you made because, you know, with the Real Immunity series, you, you, you made this comment about fears of prayer for what we don't want. And I have used that a lot. And you made a comment in a few minutes ago about chaos. Can you repeat that out of chaos? Out of chaos comes the potential for new creation. Right, right. Because I think that's so important. Yeah. And look at these last few years. It's really the chaos that's bringing us to the new way of life that's going to be more expanded, more conscious. Um, yeah. For sure. Better chaos. For sure. And, um, you know, along those lines, Eckhart Tolle says, identification with the form is death of being. So if you identify with something that's already fully formed, you are no longer in the beingness of it. You are no longer in motion because you are identifying with systemic racism or, right. you know, Right, right. Or what, whatever, whatever we're dealing with now, but when you identify with the form, it's the death of the being. Right. Motion is health. I mean, that's what we know in homeopathy. We want, we want to see motion. And just as you describe this changing fever and seeing the, the motion, the movement of the fever, that's what I always tell parents, that with the homeopathic support, we're not going to just stop all the symptoms we're going to see them move through the stages more smoothly more quickly it's that motion that we're aiming for 100 percent. and children in probably the last 20 years when they've been giving given anti-physiologic medicine so antibiotics antipyretics in terms of tylenol ibuprofen and acids for GERD, whatever it is, whatever physiology we're blocking leads to early sclerotic conditions. So we're seeing adult diseases in children like type two diabetes, uh, thyroid dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction. Um, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, now bones. Yeah. we're seeing stroke heart attack in early 20 year olds right you, know, you suppress the physiology you there is no fever high enough to break through that without hurting you right so and that's the other part of it fevers have to be highly respected because in a in a person in a child who is more neural sense, in other words, they've been suppressed either pre-birth uh, or during their lifetime, they're more at risk for damage from a fever in terms of seizures or the fever getting stuck in the appendix, appendicitis, in the gallbladder, any of those things, the, the fever getting stuck in some of those areas of sclerosis. And so keeping an eye on and making sure the symptoms are changing is, is imperative for parents. 
Right. And can you comment briefly about febrile seizures? Because this is the big fear with parents and this is why they run for the Tylenol. Yeah. So studies have shown scientifically that pre-treating with Tylenol or Motrin does not affect the intensity or the duration or the frequency of febrile seizures. Now I've read a few things in contrary to that, but the consensus is that you can't prevent it. Um, however, it's seen that these modalities, these fever reducers are benign. So pediatricians say, well, there's no harm. So go ahead and give it and maybe it will help. Well, we know that, you know, just with ibuprofen that came out with the kidney, kidney disease resulting from the ibuprofen and both of them cause lack of emotional um, uh, spectrum, right? It narrows your emotional spectrum, both of them probably via the kidney, but we don't know that for sure yet. Um, so when you're working with the children and the febrile seizures, you wanna keep the heat out of the head. You wanna keep the heat in the gut because that's 80 to 90% of your immune system is in your belly, in your intestines. You wanna keep the heat down there. A lot of times, so often, a child's fever and feel their hands and feet, they're frozen. Their head is hot, their belly hurts. They might be hallucinating. All of these things are happening. And if you put hot water bottles, you know, warm, hot, not hot, hot, warm, hot water bottles in the belly, the thighs, the calves, the feet, the child will become more lucid, more oriented, less hallucinating, less belly pain, probable in my clinical experience, less, less febrile seizures because you're keeping the heat out of the head. The head cannot expand. We have a skull. There's a limit to how much vasodilation, how much blood expansion you can get because heat expands blood in the head. But in the belly, you can expand it two times. It might be uncomfortable, but you can at least get that blood expansion in the belly without, you know, the headache and the seizures that will be caused in the, in the right. head. And it's also enhancing the immune system there. Yes. And I've always told parents that febrile seizures are not a reason to freak out, that they don't indicate lifelong epilepsy or any of that. Can you comment on that? Is, is it a reason for a parent to flip out and run to the ER? Yeah, that's what the studies show is that it is not, febrile seizures are not associated with long-term epilepsy, the development of, of any type of epilepsy. Um, However, you know, practically speaking, a child, that, a child that has a febrile seizure is a child that gets sick all of a sudden. Like right. they were okay and all of a sudden, you know, the hypothalamus is the thermostat, all of a sudden the thermostat gets disconnected from the rest of the body and just takes off and you get a high fever. Right. Now this it could be on a playground, they could be on their bike, they could be on a trampoline, they could be on a horse. Practically speaking, a febrile seizure could be dangerous if the kid is in motion and they can, can't control their body. Um, right. You know, so it's a rapidly ascending fever. Yes. Yeah. It's the rate of rise. Is so typically, let me ask you this. Typically, that isn't apt to be seen in a child who starts the fever at night and then it climbs during their sleep. Is that accurate or not necessarily applicable? It can happen at 
night. You can get a febrile seizure at night. Um, you but can if get they started seeing the fever after dinner, before bed, so it's not as rapidly ascending. But right. And especially if you start treating right away, if you see a kid that's starting to fever in the late afternoon, don't feed them. Don't feed them thinking they're going to need energy to get through this. Right. The gut works better if it's empty. Right. And if you see a kid that's really starting to get uncomfortable, empty their bowels. You know, there are some safe ways to do that. Um, you know, it's more than we can go into here, but there are safe ways to empty the bowel that are not promodal. In other words, they're not going to cause cramping. Right. Because right? that stuff out there can be uncomfortable. Um, you can start right away with the hot water bottles to the feet, you know, to the belly. You can just, you can start caring for the child right away before they get really, really sick. Right. And I right. tell the parents have, have a fever kit because at three in the morning, you're not going to want to find the water bottle and the, all the stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, have it all ready, have a, have a little, um, you know, a little box of, of remedies that the child could even participate in, you know, some healing creams or salves or whatever makes the child also feel better, maybe a candle in there or whatnot, right. uh, some stickers, you know. Right. Stickers. And there's so many homeopathic remedies that support this process as well. So yep. parents can be equipped, they can be equipped and they can feel confident and self-sufficient in terms of bringing their children through these episodes. For sure. And when you have, when you walk a parent through their first fevering illness with their child, when that illness subsides, that parent is so much more confident because mm -hmm. they have seen that they can do it within their own power. They don't need someone with a fancy degree and a white coat right. that tells them what to do or what to think or how, you know, the parents know their child. They're the master of their child. They're with them all the time. They know when a fever isn't right. And, and on that note, parents should trust their instinct. If they're going through all this stuff and they feel like they need more support, please reach out, reach out to your pediatrician, reach out to your naturopath, reach out to your homeopath, reach out to those people that, um, that you have a relationship with. Right. That's wonderful advice. Really, really great advice. Deborah. you are filled with wisdom. I so appreciate this opportunity to speak with you. Is there are there any closing words you, you'd like to share about moving forward with confidence? I would just say that, you know, I don't know the exact phrase, but Buckminster Fuller, Fuller said, um, you know, don't focus on the problem. Look, you know, create the future, create the solution that you want. Um, those aren't his exact words, but something to that effect, you know, Yes, there are things happening in this world right now that aren't fun. Um, you know, yes, people are going to be suffering, right? Food shortages and, and whatnot, but focus on what can we do every day? What can we do to move forward? You know, we have this potential, this chaos that we can use. How can we reach out to our neighbors, our community, our family, our friends? You know, how can we bring each other through this in a way that we can all heal through this. We can all be more integrated and, and whole and healthy. And even if, this, even if the situation isn't perfect, you know, focus on the positive. I think that's the way through it. Right. I think that's lovely. And I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And I really want to circle back and do it again, because I'm sure this podcast will generate 
some more questions and comments. And I would love to have you back if you're willing. Absolutely. It's so lovely reconnecting with you. Thank you so much, Zilla. Thank you, Deborah. Take care and till right. next time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for our podcast. You can go to realimmunity.org to learn more about health, homeopathy, and homeoprophylaxis, and to watch the Real Immunity film series.